0: Or business school, my brain literally would just like check out even at the mention of, you know, the stock market or investments. But investing isn't something that we do by like being a day trader, right? Investing is something that we do just kind of, you know, on the day to day with with every dollar that we spend, it's an investment into something. This is Song.
1: And this is Sarah.
0: And you're listening to Effing Ethical, a podcast about impactful consumption. Hello everyone, welcome back. Thanks for um, taking the journey with us last week and being a part of our explainer series. Um, Today we're gonna do a little bit of a deeper dive into values-based investing, Um, but just as a recap from a few things that we talked about last week. So what is values-based investing exactly? It's just an investment approach that looks at um, the different environmental and social impacts of a company's actions, um, their products, and their leaders in a way that reflects the values of the investor. It's also sometimes called mission-related investing, sustainable investing, ESG investing, green investing, and of course, impact investing, among others. And does this values-based investing negatively impact profits? Well, it's a really complicated question with a complicated answer, but we believe there's a good case to be made um, that values-based investing and profits do go hand in hand. So before we dive back in, we'd love to share with you a little bit about the history of values-based investing. It's really pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah. So a lot of people kind of know about the more recent history um, of values-based investing, which Really focused around um, apartheid South Africa and a push towards corporations and governments to divest um, their support, kind of put press the economic lever um, to push the government to end um, the apartheid policies. But it started far before that. So the the earliest date um, that I was able to find some evidence for, you know, clear values based investing was the Quakers in the 1600s who met to discuss how they thought about slavery and how they thought about the slave trade and the economic gain from that. In the 1700s, they officially made a proclamation that their members would not participate in the slave trade. So there's this old history. um, It largely came from faith-based organizations. But... Obviously, has gained a lot more popularity and just means so many different things now. And there's also been a transition of how those organizations, what they what they do support, how they think about it. Uh, most recently, the Catholic Church has um, come out supporting specifically the, the divestment from fossil fuels. So there's this kind of cool history of these faith-based organizations really pushing. You know, how do we think about kind of what's going on in the world and how do we think about the economic benefit of something that we, we don't agree on. Uh, but now, obviously, it's so many different things, right? There's um, individuals who, are, who just screen you know, some sectors from their investments. And for them, that's what values-based investing is. Um, and there's others that are looking at it from a real like impact focus um, which, which is, at least in, in my thoughts is, is, just really exciting. You know, there's a lot of data about the, the money that's going into the, the impact focus side of this, the money that's going into the ESG side of this. Um, so this is clearly a trend. And like Song said, like there, there does seem to be a lot of evidence that you're not, you're not losing out on profits by kind of following this type of investment process.
0: Yeah. And as we were investigating um, this history for the podcast, I was really kind of blown away. And I've seen so many moments of things that um, I've been inspired by um, that, you know, hopefully we can talk a little bit more about. Since this kind of values-based investing started back in the 1600s, I feel like there's also been a little bit of a shift. And especially in the past you know, kind of decades as um, things are ramping up around climate change and and whatnot, there are some new trends that have emerged. And so I thought we could start by maybe talking about some of those trends, like the green funds that might be relevant.
1: Yeah. So this is like one of my, (laughs) I have these like favorite things to talk about, (laughs) and this is largely because I did some research on this last year, but I'm sure most people listening to this podcast have heard about green bonds. Um, They were a great innovative way to get money focused on um, what they called green infrastructure. So renewable energy is a really obvious piece of that, but there's a lot of other things that fit into that. But like with everything, it's not as clear as it seems, and it's never as clear as you would want it to be as an investor. So one of the potential discrepancies with green bonds is that they can go to support both renewable energy and energy efficiency. So, what does energy efficiency mean? Well, if it, you know, you might use it to upgrade um, government buildings, for example. Like, that would be great if government buildings were more energy efficient, right? Better lighting, better heating, better windows. There's so many things there. But energy efficiency can also mean upgrading the equipment on a heavy fuel oil or gas or coal or, you know, whatever fossil fuel powered power plant. Um, and there's there's some positive impacts to that, right? The, if that's going to be operating anyways, and there are so many places in the world where there is just not enough renewable energy yet, and there's also not good baseload power. So maybe one podcast will kind of really dig into the energy sector, but a really important uh, piece of providing the world with energy is, is energy mix and having a baseload power plant. So no matter the time of day, no matter the weather, you can create consistent energy. Obviously, wind and solar are not you know, consistent energy, but if you're running a power plant on, on oil or gas, it is. It's very consistent as long as you have that oil. So if you're somewhere that you know, relies on those types of power plants, and you upgrade the equipment so they're more energy efficient, there's, a, there's like a positive outcome to that. You're looking at um, a lot less you know, air emissions, um, less greenhouse gas emissions. So you know, all encompassing, it makes sense why that's part of a green bond, but there's not necessarily transparency about that. So different countries or different issuers of those green bonds might have different ideas about you know what counts, and you as an investor might feel very strongly that you don't want any of your money going to um, anything that produces greenhouse gases, and that is a value that a lot of investors have. But if a bond says it's a green bond, but most of the investments are actually going to upgrade the equipment on um, gas-fired power plants, that might not be something you want to invest in, um, or maybe it is, but. The point is that it's not always super transparent what those bonds are being used for. The other just quick um, addition I'll make to that is that the requirements for a green bond don't actually say a lot about the negative risks associated with it. So like we talked about last week with, with ESG, those um, those criteria, those factors are largely things that you look at for, like their risks associated with their company, their risk mitigations. Um, And there's not clear standards about if you're going to make a green investment through a green bond, how you need to mitigate for social impact. It's again, green energy is great. Renewable energy is really an important thing to continue to invest in but they're also huge infrastructure projects and any large infrastructure project is gonna have a massive social impact, whether it impacts traffic in the area during construction, they hire a lot of workers, there's a lot of contractors and subcontractors, which makes it a lot more difficult to implement good labor practices, the more kind of different subcontractors you have. Um, And so again, that's just to say that, you know, Green bonds are great. They're, they're super innovative. It's amazing how much money and thought has gone into them. But it's just important to be aware that just because it says that it's a green bond doesn't mean that there's no potential negative impact or it might not be funding what you think it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that just reflects um just like the complicated nature of that really just reflects um everything that that we talk about and I feel like that song uh complicated has been it was just been kind of like looping through my mind. <laughs> Everything is, it's so complicated. Um, And, you know, I guess, you know, we're going to try to do our best to detangle these things as much as we can. But I feel like it really takes all of us kind of like diving in together and um, working together to untangle and to kind of like open source all of this information about different things in order um, for us to really be able to be informed.
1: Yeah. And I feel like, I was just say, I think this is such a good example of There being like different thoughts and opinions about this, but like neither of which are necessarily wrong. So there might be, like I said, there's, it's not that energy efficiency is bad, but for some that might not be the priority over supporting or financing renewable energy specifically. Um, And I know that we had looked into this idea of um, divesting from certain types of investments Versus being more of kind of an activist investor, and I think that's another one of those areas that there's just some really different opinions about how effective each one is.
0: Yeah, um, that's like the the dilemma of the day, right? I, I guess there's different opinions about how effective. Both of those are, um, but there's also kind of different in different contexts. One might be more appropriate than the other. Kind of a typical argument is that you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't divest because then you won't have a say, you won't have a seat at the at the table to steer companies into a more sustainable or responsible direction. Um, there's also the argument that you know when you leave, others may swoop in and, and take that spot, and maybe they won't have the same strong convictions. To, um, to get the company to be a better actor. On the other hand, divestment, either personally as an investor or as part of a fund or as part of a campaign um, can really send a strong message. So, I mean, this debate, I feel like it's not unlike what we've talked about in other contexts, too, right, about how whenever possible and appropriate, a good starting point is probably trying to use accountability mechanisms first before um, completely kind of disengaging When you're thinking about this kind of dilemma uh, between divestment and activist investment, you can also think about if there is a larger or broader campaign that you can tap into um, so that you can, you know, kind of build collective power. I think that if you do decide to divest on your own um, as not part of some bigger campaign, it's really important to um, make sure that the companies know. Um, let them know through their investor relations folks uh, why you're leaving. You you know, rather than just pulling out your money, um, let them know that this was not okay. It's um, the company's acting in ways that are contrary to your values, and, and that's why you're leaving. And the more kind of uh, input that they have on that, the more kind of, you um, yeah, the more compelling your case will be uh, to, to get that company to change through your actions of divestment. So I wanted to actually bring in sort of two examples on both sides of this to kind of demonstrate that it's not, one's not necessarily always better than the other. And um, it just, it honestly, they both just take different types of, of thought um, and different types of Um, campaigns or different types of issues kind of lend itself better. An example, like kind of an early example of shareholder advocacy that I love because it kind of brings in my former world of community organizing with uh, investor shareholder advocacy comes from the late 1960s in Rochester, New York. There was this organizer named Saul Alinsky, and he helped to form a faith-based organization called Fight which was led by a black minister in the inner city. Um, His name was Minister Florence, uh, who also was the former NAACP vice president. So they formed this organization in response to race riots that erupted in the city in response to police brutality. So, you know, some things change and some things really don't, right? But anyway, so this group set out to do something not just in response to this this riot, but um, to really try to create systemic change and address this ridiculous disparity between black and white residents of the city. So they, you know, they decided to take this novel approach um, and approach the economic driver of the community, so at the time, Kodak was a darling of Rochester, New York. Um, they were the largest employer. They were in, um, they were sort of involved philanthropically in a lot of the different kind of arts communities. And um, and you know, fight pushed Kodak, and they got an agreement with them to hire for, from the poor black community. But eventually, you know, Kodak reneged on their promise. So. What they decided to do was they bought just 10 shares of the company stock so that it could have access to um, Kodak's annual shareholder meetings. And in that meeting, they urged stockholders to sign on to this resolution to hire um, from the black community. During this shareholder meeting, too, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just this organization, but thousands of people gathered outside to protest, and it actually turned into like a years long saga that divided the community. And yeah, it was just like a really kind of an inspiring um, story, but it you know not only did they eventually get their goal of getting uh, Kodak to hire from the black community but it also just drew attention to the problem of poverty and um, it resulted in the creation of employment and training efforts in the city and um, the creation of something called the Rochester Business Opportunities Corporation which was created to support black minority owned businesses and so this was just a really inspiring story for from, uh, from me, and I love that now, we can really be you know, an activist from whatever place we want, whether it's on the streets or um, at a shareholder meeting. But then now kind of like thinking to, to the other side. So last summer, I got to participate in a community forum interning for this really cool organization on the West Coast called Impact Experience, and um, my boss, thank you, Jenna. Uh, she invited me to attend a community forum hosted by a fund called Robeschiati and Philipson, a fund with a Black woman founder, actually, for their impact fund. So these were essentially just gatherings of members from the the community in the Bay Area, um, and they got to listen to some of the things that the fund was thinking about, and um, the community was able to sort of Give you know, kind of like weigh in their thoughts on um, on whatever particular issue. So, this particular forum was about whether or not this fund should put a screen on industrial agriculture, and it was you know super informative. They set the backdrop, and um, you know they told us about how industrial agriculture contributes to unhealthy communities, how extractive of the earth and and people it is. Um, you know, industrial agriculture causes 90% of deforestation and the top five meat and dairy companies put together emit more greenhouse gases than, you know, ExxonMobil or BP or Shell even. And this, you know, this industry, it was also kind of sustained through land grabs, both legal and illegal. And so there's just like a whole host of reasons why it's bad, um, and the gut kind of reaction might be to just divest or to build um, a movement to divest, but it was what I was really kind of inspired by was that it was a thoughtful time of community reflection and contemplation about what what divestment um, might look like and raising questions about the things that needed more research about possible unintended consequences. So whether there were going to be impacts on farmers around the world, right, if there was this massive divestment from the industry, or um, how low-income communities who currently depend on the food that comes from industrial agriculture, how they'll be affected, right? Um, And so, yeah, it was just a really cool way to get insight into how funds are being thoughtful about investing. And it made sort of this kind of idea about divestment versus Activist investing more tangible, and how um, thinking about investment doesn't have to be something that's just for people with a ton of money. It's something that you, as a community member, can can really get involved in. Yeah. So I
1: loved how you were able to talk about um, this idea of like divestment or activist kind of investment on a lot of different scales. Right. As a community member, you have a lot of power, um, but also you know, and, and this is just true that large financial institutions have a ton of power in this space. And so when you're looking at divestment on on a huge scale, there can be a lot of power. And there's this really cool initiative um, that is supported by the Rocky Mountain Institute It's called the Center for Climate Aligned Finance. And what they're looking at is they're looking at those large banks, those large financial institutions, and how they're going to be part of both divesting from fossil fuels and investing in renewable energy and carbon capture and kind of all of the aspect, all of the things that are going to go into this like net zero carbon future. And I just thought it was like such an innovative idea of, you know, they're going big, right? Like the biggest financial institutions, but also mm-hmm. looking at it from a, there is a huge impact to the world economy not that it's going to happen, but if like all of the major financial institutions in the US just stop um, investing in fossil fuels. And I'm sure that there are, you know, many people for a lot of reasons who would support that, but that, you know, that has a specific impact, but they're really looking at how can these institutions be part of this transition that really, you know, works for the banks themselves. Like it's not that they're going to lose a ton of money they're just part of this transition and they're looking for what are the new opportunities, what does investing in energy in the future look like? Um, and yeah, I just thought that was a really cool example of on a large scale, what can, both divestment and kind of changing the focus of investments look like.
0: Yeah, that's so true. That's such a great point, point. Um, and I'm I'm really glad you brought that up. The other day, I was talking to a friend who works at you know a said very large financial institution, um, and she was talking about how on their kind of like company-wide calls, they've, you know, finally kind of started talking about ESG and talking about it in a way um, where they're talking about it's it's sort of the future, right? Talking about it as not just something that's necessarily, right, like this niche thing that we do to like placate customers or, you know, whatever it is, but bringing it into into the core of their business. And so... I thought that was really cool. That um, it seems like there is a transition from you know big and small institutions alike towards towards that. I think there's also a trend in um, something called uh, restorative investments, and um, restorative investing is an approach that is more proactive. It's looking intentionally for investments that are you know either overlooked or localized that will address systemic injustices that uh, extract from and penalize communities of color, um, the poor, and the working class. It's about making investments that generate community wealth and um, creating government, governance structures that benefit all stakeholders, not just shareholders, but um, all stakeholders, and that build community power. This nonprofit organization called Transform Finance developed a set of principles on what this looks like. The three-pronged kind of approach to this is that they uh, engage communities in design uh, and the governance and ownership of the funds. Um, They add more value than they extract, and um, they fairly balance risk and return among investors, entrepreneurs, and the community so that it's not... All sort of in the favor of the the folks with power, which tends to be the investors, but making sure that all of that is fairly balanced across all of this, all different stakeholders. So, um, an example of this type of investment um, is the Ujima Fund in Boston. So, what they do is they um, raise democratic capital to finance small businesses and real estate and infrastructure projects in Boston's working class neighborhood. Um, and they have different, different kind of notes um, that you can invest in depending on your investor status. So whether you're accredited or non-accredited, whether you are philanthropy, right, whether you are an individual from Boston, whether you are an individual um, you know, in different parts of the country. They look to invest in small businesses uh, like providing working capital to a bike shop to buy equipment, for example, or um, real estate acquisition financing for a local community land trust. And alongside with their uh, grassroots partner organizations, they host these neighborhood and citywide planning assemblies with you know hundreds of residents to create plans for you know shared value and plans for their own local economy
1: yeah and that's actually a perfect transition into like what can you as an investor do and when we say you as an investor this doesn't mean you know you with some extra money that you're interested in investing this might be your savings. This might be your retirement fund. Like if you're saving money for the future and it's held in an account somewhere, it's doing work and you can have, um, kind of thoughts about what you want it to be doing during that time. And you can really apply what your, what your values are to that investment. There's so many ways. And what you were just saying about, um, this fund that's like democratically raised, um, one really interesting piece of the Jobs Act was basically making crowdfunding easier for financial institutions, um, for companies. And so that means that you can invest even a small amount of money, kind of regardless of your net wealth. Um, and that makes things like that possible. That makes you know these community funds possible to raise money from their own community in really small amounts or kind of whatever amount individuals want to support it through. It's like one of those, like you know, re- there's so many regulations that are affecting every piece of our life and we don't necessarily know about them. But that was one mm-hmm. that didn't get you know all the publicity that the the CFPB did or the startup of that organization, but it's no less a huge part of like democratizing the financial system. And yeah, there's so many other things that you as an individual can do. And I think one really great place to start that a lot of a lot of people don't necessarily think about, um, again, is just kind of like, where is your money right now? So if you have a retirement account, you know, likely through your work, do you know what that money is in? Usually retirement accounts have these very clear, you know, based on your age and when you plan to retire, it's just in a fund that uh, the the organization that's managing that money has has decided. But have you ever asked the ask them, are there other options? like can you um, can you have requirements about what companies they might divest from or what kinds of things you want to support? There some um, retirement funds are starting to offer those. And this is where like your power as a consumer can be really impactful. Because if your provider isn't offering those um, or the the provider for your company isn't, but a lot of people are interested, that can make a huge difference. You know, if this is something that you care about, talk to the people around your office. Like, are there other people who care about it that you can go to management and say, hey, like you've got this contract with this provider for our retirement accounts. Can we talk to them about providing... Some different options that better align with our values, maybe as a company or just um, the the values of the individuals that are invested in that.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, I think when we think about our retirement savings or, um, you know, having our money in big mutual funds. It feels like we're kind of removed from that and um, a little bit powerless, but there are so many ways that we can kind of bring that power back and and have our money actually work for for us and for our values, right? You know, we kind of have been fangirling about CDFIs, and so <laughs> <laughs> so CDFIs—they're community development financial institutions—and they're essentially private financial institutions that provide a better way of um of banking that is kind of more transparent and less less extractive and more accessible um, to the communities that they that they live in. And I think it's really it's kind of sometimes daunting to think about banking elsewhere, but there is um, this organization called Green America and they and you know other, other kind of organizations as well have lists of banks, alternative banks, if you're interested that you can think about kind of moving your money to. And again, I know that it seems like a really kind of a daunting and, and big thing, but if you're really interested, they also have this step-by-step, like 10-step way to, it says 10 steps to break up with your you know mega bank, <laughs> but yeah, it just kind of walks you through so that it doesn't feel um, as, as daunting.
1: Um, yeah. And if you're at a place where you can make an investment other than just your your personal savings, there's a number of ways that you can invest in um, community development financial institutions. One just kind of innovative, easy to use um, organization that I've only recently um, been introduced to is called C-Note. So, you know, just like, something cool to kind of check out how they're doing it. There's also this organization that's been around for a very long time um, called Calvert Impact Capital. And you can invest, I think as low as like $25 um, into their community note, And they support a ton of community development financial institutions in the U.S. And so um, those are just sort of, you know, some of the many ways that you can support these CDFIs. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that in this moment of um, thinking about the, the impact that every aspect of our lives have, we're even just thinking about where are we holding our money? Like really basic, where are we holding our money? Are there opportunities for us to move our money to a CDFI, to um, a local credit union? There's, there's just so many different options um, and there's a ton of information available um, and I like that, the, the 10 steps <laughs> for breaking up with your large mm-hmm. bank. Um, I think that that's a really good way to start. Um, and again, like just to think about it, I think that's what's so cool about this is that there's no direct, it, it, I guess it's, it's challenging, but also an opportunity. There's no direct way to just like do the right thing here and have your money like perfectly invested. But there's just a lot of tools out there that depending on what your values are, you can kind of match the tools. Um, another sort of piece of that is if you have an investment advisor, start asking them these questions. Not every investment advisor has you know sustainable funds or maybe have thought about this. Uh, but again, if you as an individual start kind of asking them about it, maybe they'll start thinking about it. And there are quite a few registered investment advisors around the country who are already thinking about this and they have, all of the tools and all of the funds and they kind of understand how to support an individual investor in developing a portfolio that works to align with their values.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're not giving, you know, we're not talking about all of these different things that you can potentially do as an investor to say this is what you have to do or that this is the right thing to do. But it's just, again, we're just giving kind of suggestions and things that we've sort of been th- thinking about in ways that we can be a little bit more intentional with our spending and with our with their money. When I was thinking about, you know, before business school, so um, I think another thing is you know, kind of thinking about and getting comfortable with the idea of investing in a different way that feels more approachable. And I'm speaking mostly to myself, who, you know, before business school, my brain literally would just like check out even at the mention of, you know, the stock market or investments. But investing isn't something that we do by like being a day trader, right? Investing is something that we do just kind of you know, on the day to day, with um, with every dollar that we spend, it's an investment into something, right? Something that's kind of presented that I that I've seen recently is community supported agriculture, and it is a way that you can like kind of quote unquote invest in a farm. So sometimes this is kind of in the form of prepayment or like a subscription model um, where you can take an interest in a farm in exchange for a quote unquote share of the produce that comes from the farms, like a farm co-op, right? But you'd be able to directly contribute so that farmers can get access to capital to work with and a guaranteed market. And then when they do well, right, like you do well by um getting access to the bounties of of the farm
1: okay we barely got into all the topics that go into values-based investing i'm sure we'll come back to this and dig into things like impact investing all the esg and socially responsible investment products and the many ways that you can align your investments with your values I hope that this was interesting and maybe prompted you to do some of your own research and ask questions about where your money's going. If you have any questions or want us to talk about anything in particular, please let us know. In fact, next week, we're going to respond to a listener-requested topic, what to do about Amazon. Check us out on Instagram, where we are asking for your feedback and thoughts about Amazon and ethical consumption. Thanks for listening to Effing Ethical, and don't forget to review us wherever you listen.